called A Full Body Experience of a Movie That You Will Not Want to Miss by the Daily Grindhouse, XYZ Films Hypochondriac is on all VOD platforms for digital sales and rentals, including Apple TV and Amazon starting August 4th. We love the people over at XYZ Films. Do we not, Eric? We absolutely do. That's true, including the enormously sexy James Shapiro. Head of distribution over there, as I understand it. Hypochondriac is the debut feature from Addison Hyman based on the true story of his mental breakdown. Rue Morgue said, Hypochondriac perfectly exemplifies the power and range that horror possesses. And the scariest thing says, not since Steven Soderbergh's brilliant 2018 dedication of mental health and unsane has there been a film that manages to simultaneously educate and scare the living daylights out of us. Hypochondriac is currently rated fresh by Rotten Tomatoes and has one of the highest scores of any horror film in 2022. Per the Harvard Crimson, it is an important film for the current moment, offering a gorgeously complex narrative of queer love and self-realization that transcends genre or audience. Hypochondriac is on all digital platforms for rental and sales on and after August 4th. Go check it out, folks. Well done, Scott. Now it's my turn to tell all you good people about our corporate overlords at Fangoria. You know it's time for this. Now, we all know Fangoria is a classic magazine. It's been at it for over 40 years, and it is back and better than ever. Not only is Fangoria highly collectible, if you get yourself an annual subscription, it comes right to your door four times a year, and each issue is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past present and future with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including your intrepid King cast hosts. The high quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine. So if you want to join in on the fun, you'll need to subscribe. And to do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and well, sign up. And since KingCast listeners are in the family, you can enter in the promo code KingCast at checkout to save a whopping 25% off your entire order. Now, with all of that said, let's get on with the show. Hi, my name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Red rum! Red rum! Girl! You guys wanna go see a dead body? Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. I am allegedly Scott Wampler. Allegedly. And we are your hosts. Today we have a rather interesting title to discuss. This is the very first appearance of this title, actually, in the main feed. We've only briefly touched upon it in in our Patreon bonus episodes. Uh, But that title is Carrie the Musical, the infamous stage adaptation of Carrie that has both legions of haters as well as diehard fans. And if we're going to talk about Carrie the Musical here on the King Cast, there's no better guest than the Tony-nominated composer, lyricist, and playwright behind such theater gems as Be More Chill, Things to Ruin, Rewrite, a musical comedy triple feature, and Punk Rock Girl. He also happens to be a huge Stephen King fan. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Joe Iconis to the King Cast stage. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me. That is an impressive list of credits. You are our first Tony Award-winning guest, I believe. Nominated. 
Oh, no, yeah, nominated. No, yeah, Tony yeah. nominated guest. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Future um, Tony winner. That's what we'll say. Yes, future Tony, future winner, Tony yes. winner. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna live, I'm gonna live in the nominated only world for as long as I can, so I can still feel like an underdog. I think that's you're gonna end up with it. more. You're gonna end up with more Tonys than a a fucking New Jersey sub shop, baby. I, I, I am sure that's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but thanks for coming on. This this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh when we were first kind of uh hooked up together, like the initial thing that made my ears perk up was that you had actually taken inspiration from Misery for for a a, a big song and like uh, mm-hmm. and when we've kind of hinted around on on socials about like uh uh, you know, about, we haven't like said directly that you're coming on, but we've kind of hinted around and like people have already picked up on it. So it's like known that you like Stephen King within the, <laughs> the theater world. So maybe we can start talking about that. Like talk about, you know, uh, yeah. tell us more about the misery influence on you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So I, um, you know, so I, I, I have written, I've written a, a whole bunch of musicals and in the, in the kind of world of, of musical theater, I definitely um, sort of have a reputation of being someone who kind of writes like left of center stuff. Like mm-hmm. I write a lot of stuff that has um, sort of genre influences. And so um, a, a lot of my, my standalone songs, cause I also have this group called Joy Connison family and we do these concerts where it's, it's all my tunes um, and sort of like in between like a, like a, like a rock band and a cabaret show or something. And uh, for my standalone songs, I've, I've taken a lot of inspiration from, from horror movies. Mm. Uh, I have a song that's inspired by, uh, you know, Psycho. I have one inspired by Death Becomes Her. Uh, so it's a, that's something that I've always done. Um, Great but pull. yeah, I have, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've, uh, I, I have this tune uh, that was really heavily inspired by, uh, by Misery that's on my, uh, my last album that just came out and it's called the nurse and the addict. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it, an, uh, I, I, I love misery a lot. Um, the, the book and the, the movie. Um, and it's, it's less like, Oh, this is a song that would be in misery, the musical, you know, because right. I don't particularly, um, want misery, the musical. In fact, I would actively love for that never to happen, but, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's a song that is it's about the things that I think you know misery is about, like you know addiction and dependence on you know on 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 medication and on people and fandom and and being a writer and a you know being obsessed and and all that. So uh, yeah, the song is kind of like a a twisted uh, meditation on on all that stuff, essentially written from the the point of view of Paul Sheldon. That's really cool. Uh, what you know? What's really funny it, to me is there's this crazy influence on Stephen King within the world of metal. Like we've had Scotty in from Anthrax came on. Anthrax mm-hmm. is like fucking like a whole album that's just dedicated, uh, inspired by The Stand, right? And right. and right, uh, right. but and then I King does his own like little you know rock bottom remainder thing, and he's done some work with John Mellencamp. But it feels like you have these two extremes, right? There's not mm-hmm. really much in the middle. It's either metal or musical theater now (laughs) you know and yeah and 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 that to me is so fascinating that why those two polar like extremes at least on on paper and on the surface polar extremes um would be attracted to this material do you have any thoughts on that it's yeah you know i think that i think it has to do with with theatricality you know and i think metal metal is like that's a fairly theatrical genre you know and it's it's certainly like 
it's certainly like larger than life, everything. And so I think that people who sort of, you know, who sort of dabble in, in, in art forms that, that sort of lend themselves to that kind of hugeness, I think that, you know, of course they're going to be drawn to, you know, to horror in general, but especially a writer like, like Stephen King, who, because there's, there's so much going on, you know? So it's like, you're, you're taken in by the fun of the, you know, the madness of, of the, you know, the, the surface level, you know, uh, stuff that's going on in his, his books and in the movies, but there's so many underlying themes um, that are, you know, so, so strong and so tied to, you know, tied to the, 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 the plot, the characters and all that, that it's like, it's, it's really, it's like a really sexy thing to think of, you know, hmm. playing in that, that world. Um, I mean, I, I think that there's, you know, I think that I, I wish more, you know, just, you know, pop songwriters or, or, you know, whoever would, would, would sort of, you know, work in the in the Stephen King world a, a little bit and find a little bit of inspiration but it, it makes sense to me that it's people who are you know operating in these like these huge huge you know expressive art forms for right. sure I'd like to see I'd like to hear some country music based on, I hate country music but <laughs> I, I would be really <laughs> interested to hear like give me a country song about it I'd like to hear that <laughs> you know yeah yeah <laughs> You hate you just hate all country music like you just yeah. yeah you just you're just not into it like even like old old school country you're I mean not- there's like there's bits and pieces of it where I'm like well that's a great song you know right right right, right. but you will never like I've never owned a country album I <laughs> like uh, <laughs> I tend to avoid country western bars or or places of mm-hmm. that nature um, mm-hmm. it's just. Like I get it. It's not. I mean, I grew up in Texas. That shit is everywhere down here. But uh, right, right. It's just not my speed at all. Yeah. And and so much of it sounds exactly the fucking same to me mm. that I, I mm-hmm. can't even differentiate. You know, more yeah. power to all the country listeners out there. It's just not. Yeah. You know, I I got you. I got you. I think that you know. I think something that's funny about country music is that so much of it is about storytelling. You know, especially like mm. old school country, which I which I, I do like a lot. Um, yeah. And so I think that's, that's where it's like, you know, with, with the, you know, the, I feel like a country song based on a Stephen King book would, you know, it would be, it would be three hours long because they would just have to like get through the, you know, it's, <laughs> it's much more about the sort of story of like this happened and this happened and this happened. And then you kind of take the message away from that as opposed to right. like really exploring the, you know, the internal struggle of a character or, you know, or the, you know, the point of view of a, of one person in a story. Um, so yeah, I feel like, I feel like the country music versions of, you know, the, of, of Firestarter or something would be very, very long. <laughs> for, <laughs> for, plot, for sure. plot synopsis set to music. Yeah. yeah. Especially as, as folksy as, as King stuff can get, you know, in small town, like mm-hmm. there is a good fit there, but I'm kind of with Scott, but, but I actually, I, I'm somewhere, I think maybe in between you two, because I really do like, um, the old school when country was closer to rock, you know, the early mm-hmm, rock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when you can maybe confuse Roy Orbison for a country singer at that, you know, at that time, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, I know, love but, Roy but I, Orbison, but that's like. But he's I, he's rock, you know, but there was that that time time where it was, you know, the Johnny Cash era, you know, where you're getting into. Yeah. Yeah, to to that seven, you know, and I love Dolly Parton, and you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, and I even have a soft spot for some of the '70s stuff, you know, when you watch the what Tarantino would call exploitation, you know, the convoys mm-hmm. and white lightning, <laughs> yeah. and, and yeah, all that, yeah, yeah. you know. So like, I love Waylon Jennings because of that, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I'm like a fan where I like, I don't have a like Scott said, I don't have an album of his stuff, but like I do like that 
that version and I have a little bit of a nostalgia mm-hmm. for, for that. That is, well. I think yeah. we're on in that sense. I think we're on the same page. I'm, right. I just put it a little more bluntly, um, right. <laughs> you know, because fuck country. Yeah. Yeah. I fuck hate those listeners. Music. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I probably could have worded that a little more softly, but you I know, like um, but yeah, I, 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 I like everything that, Vespi just mentioned it's like yep I'm a fan of that I'm a fan of that I'm a fan of that mm-hmm. like but I See, wouldn't yeah so I don't you'll, know maybe I don't you hate like country I just you, you, you just know, like, like outlaw outlaw country that's what you don't like yeah, yeah, Garth yeah. Brooks country maybe yeah yeah Garth Brooks country <laughs> yeah have you guys listened to um this is something that people have asked us before and I've and I have to admit it's kind of a blind spot for me on King but since we're talking about it uh, have you listened to this Ghost Brothers of Darkland County thing that he did? Because that that's a musical, but with John Mellencamp, but it's produced by T Bone Burnett. Um, which mm-hmm. so I have to imagine that's got to have a country flair to it. Yeah, it's like it it is country, and I weirdly have only ever heard like sort of li- little bits and pieces of it. And that's mm. a show that's been like that's been kicking around for a really long time. Like, right. and they you know they've done a million like, readings and workshops and different productions and stuff of that thing. But I've never actually like seen it from start to finish or 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 really listened to it, uh, which is so strange. As I love both Stephen King and musical theater, but that <laughs> right. remains it remains a strange uh, blind spot for me mm. as well. Yeah, homework. <laughs> yes, more stuff. <laughs> more stuff to dive into. Oh, more no Stephen way. King things. God, we're going to have to do a Ghostland County episode now. <laughs> now that it's been invoked on the show. We'll just have to get uh, John Mellencamp on and and uh, he yeah. can tell us all about it. That'll be easy, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. But also, that's that's also like, I mean, I think that's, I think that's, I, I, I like John Mellencamp. You know, he, he's fine. It's, you know, we're, who doesn't like John Mellencamp? But... It, it that feels like such a strange match to me. Like I understand them being friends. I don't understand right. John Mellencamp writing a Stephen King musical. It uh, does seem which, weird. Yeah, it's yeah. It's like that's not that. That feels not like an organic pairing of two artists to me. But who knows? Yeah, yeah. I, do, I should look into that. Yeah. So you, know. you might have your your Stephen King country. <laughs> music out there we just I know listen to it I'm just putting it's my foot in my mouth all, all over the place on this episode <laughs> yeah I just wanted to call it out before the Twitter feed was filled with well actually uh, smart bros yeah so. oh they've already they didn't wait for you oh <laughs> they're already there. <laughs> no, 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 I'm sure they're <laughs> they're already those drafts are already being written for 10 <laughs> seconds into this episode but. um I guess uh let, let's start here Joe um what is what's your Stephen King origin story? My Stephen King origin story is so I was a I was a kid who was very scared of mm-hmm. uh, of everything. Pretty much, I was uh, you know I was I, I was easily spooked by uh, movies. You know, I'm I'm I was born in in eighty one, and so I have like you know, a lot of people around my age have similar sort of like, Oh, this shit terrified me stories. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, return to Oz and like things oh, like yeah. that. Like just totally, you know, totally wheelers, man. Fuck the wheelers. The wheelers. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Shivers, shivers down my spine. And, um, and, and so I, uh, at a, at a really young age, I got into musical theater through the, um, the original production of little shop of horrors, which is in and of itself, like a sort of like, you know, there's sort of horror elements to that, to that musical. And it was this weird thing where 
even though I was like scared by a lot of, you know, media, I was six years old and seeing Little Shop of Horrors and I, and I, I, I loved it. Mm, and so yeah. I, because of that, I kind of got into theater. And so I was in a, a, a bookstore in the theater section. I was probably like, like, you know, maybe nine or 10 or something. And uh, I saw this book called Not Since Carrie. And it was mm. a book on theater flops written by this dude, mm. Ken hmm. Mandelbaum. Yeah. And I had, I had no idea what Carrie was. I had no, I had no sense of, of, of who Stephen King was. I knew the name just from like, you know, being out in the world and, and seeing like covers of his, of his books, which I immediately was like, Oh, that's scary. I'm not going to, you know, process that <laughs> the cover of, of misery or, or, you know, Cujo or any of that. Uh, Cause the font was, was very terrifying. Uh, this, this, like this carry, you know, this carry book, I was so intrigued because the, so the cover of it is, uh, it's a picture of Lindsay Haightley, who is the name of the actress who played Carrie and Carrie the musical, uh, in, in the prom dress, just drenched in blood. And she's, uh, and she's, she's laughing. She's like smiling and laughing, just covered in blood. So mm-hmm. as like a kid who was like terrified of, of, of many things but also like sort of, you know, titillated and intrigued by anything like horror adjacent. I, I was really like sort of baffled by the cover of this book and had no idea what it meant or, or what any, you know, any part of it had to do with, um, you know, with, with Stephen King or theater or anything. And so I ended up getting this book and read it. And it turned out that the, it's this book where it sort of talks about these shows that were big flops on Broadway but it's the the first chapter and the last chapter is like a really sort of deep dive examination into Carrie the musical. And so reading about Carrie the musical is how I kind of was introduced to the, the world of, of Stephen King and, and Carrie as a, as a property. And then, you know, the older I got, the more I sort of like started dabbling in film and just sort of becoming more aware of Stephen King in general. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Ca- Carrie was probably the first Stephen King movie I saw, followed very quickly by like uh, by Misery and The Shining and then sort of all the, the biggies that would have been available like, mm-hmm. you know, early 90s. The more I got into it, the more, you know, Stephen King properties just became you know, things that I, I ended up loving, you know, I never like, I, I wasn't a huge reader as a kid and I'm, and I'm still not a huge reader, but uh, it sort of just happened, you know, throughout my, my early years. Like I, I would just find myself attracted to, you know, movies, you know, whatever. And a lot of times be like, Oh, I didn't realize this was based on a Stephen King book. And so it became clear. I am, I am, you know, I have some kind of connection to this, this stuff. And then as I've, you know, as I've gotten older, um, I just really, you know, love, love his stuff and his voice mm. and, and love so much of the art that's, that's come from his, his books. I'm curious if, uh, you watched the it miniseries when you were a kid, I, I was just about I was, to ask the same thing because, yeah, yeah. uh, because mm-hmm. I'm an 81 baby as well. And, uh, oh, and that came out, you know, prime nine, 10 years old or whatever. When that right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And it was marketed and aimed at families. So like if all families watch that shit. So there's a whole generation of kids out there that for, have never sure. recovered. They're all fucked yeah, up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. Yeah. Completely fucked up. Um, no, so I, I didn't watch it. Like I didn't come to it until later because it scared me like i was right, definitely right. aware of it and it def and for me i was just like nope 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 not looking at that and <laughs> the you know it wasn't until yeah it wasn't until like i was i was older that i that i then you know 
check that out. Totally fair. But yeah, totally. Fair. Yeah, I, I definitely. Yeah, I, I definitely came to it all through the through the movies for sure. That's the case with a lot of people. I'd say it's like 50 50 on the yeah. show with guests. Yeah. You know, and that's kind as of often. the case with me. Is yeah, that the case with you too, mm-hmm. Scott. You watched, you saw the movies before you like read the books, right? Or was Eyes of no, the Dragon before well, that? Yeah, Eyes of the Dragon. Like my, you know, my grandma read that to me when I was <laughs> six, seven. You know, somewhere in there, like yeah. very, mm-hmm. very young. And um, uh, yeah, it must have been six because we were still in the old house. It doesn't matter. Um, but no, I I read that. Well, I didn't read it, but. It was yeah, she, read, read. She read you. a bunch of it to me, and then uh, I think my mother finished it, maybe, because um, you know I was being babysat while my folks were in Hawaii or some shit, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> and I remember getting in trouble for reading King like in grade school, but I can't remember at this moment like which I think it was The Shining, like I remember getting in trouble with the teacher and being like you know, them being like, this is inappropriate. And my parents got involved and, you know, they were just happy that I was reading, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, I think I read before I actually saw the movies, but you know, I definitely watched the it mini series when that was on. Right. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, I must've seen, I know I'd seen, I, I, I think silver bullet might be the first movie I saw actually. Cause that was on, that was on like, TV all the fucking time when I was right. a kid, like on Channel yeah, 11 yeah. in Dallas. You know, it was just a mainstay. Yeah, I've <laughs> never really, I've never really examined that, like the order of order of that. <laughs> of and I don't much. think, I think my brain is just trash anymore anyway. So I don't think I probably could give you a timeline. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the rough timeline. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is yeah. something about seeing the movie and it, that kind of acting is like training wheels for more adult stuff as kids. So, like, I felt like I was able mm-hmm. to, my first kid book was Cujo. And I'd seen the movie. So I was like, I've seen the movie so I can read this adult book now because I know in my mind, I'm like, I know what the story is already. So at least, you know, if I don't understand something like, you know, I don't know if like nine or 10 year old me, however old I was at the time reading (laughs) that it was sixth grade uh, was like putting it into that context. But like looking back Mm -hmm. on it, that was kind of my my thought process. Why this won't be hard because I've seen the movie and uh, right. Right. And that just like instantly hooked me. And then I made a pact with myself to read everything Stephen King. And I did that. Uh, I think I finally caught up by middle of high school. So from sixth grade to middle of high school, I was like, I always had a Stephen King or Michael Crichton book in my hand. It seemed like I took a little break during the Jurassic Park. Uh, heyday of 93 <laughs> to, to, to dive super and super heavily into uh, Michael Crichton. But, but yeah, when you were, when you were a kid, you know, reading the stuff and seeing the movies, were you obsessed with like the, the differences between the books oh, and yeah. movies? Cause I, I remember that, that was such a huge thing for me when I finally, you know, got around to like, to reading those like an original, like, you know, movies that I was obsessed with, like the shining and, and misery, the, you know, the, the differences, like the, the big ones and the little ones, I just remember being so obsessed and like, just kind of like, you know, baffled as a kid. And like, I remember like sort of like making up my own, you know, reasons for why they changed things that, you know, mm-hmm. that may, maybe, you know, not even like, not even like, you know, like, like, you know, anything for like plot or, or, you know, I, I had no, you know, no conception of like, Oh, well you can't just like, you know, put a full, you know, 900 page novel on screen, you know, with everything in there. But just, you know, I, I remember like making up like, Oh, well, you know, maybe it's, 
this person got really mad at this other person this day when they were filming <laughs> this scene. And so like to get, you know, to, to punish them, they cut out this part or, you know, just like shit like that. I just remember being so, so, you know, enamored with the reasoning behind the changes. Right. I mean, I kind of dove into the deep end right away with that because Cujo being my first book, the mo- they have two completely different endings and the book yeah. ending is a real gut punch. As a matter of fact, <laughs> that is the whole, uh, whole uh, basis of the, my latest article in Fangoria, which is out on newsstands now as you're listening to this. And uh, it's talking about those two endings because in the book, the kid doesn't come back. He dies. And yeah. And, uh, you know, being that age, it's weird because it's not just, oh, I've seen this and this had a happy ending in the movie and a sad ending in the book. It was, wait, stories can end like this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like because even yeah. like, as, yeah. as traumatizing as like never ending story or some shit is to to kids of my generation, you know, at the end, Atreyu is writing Artax and everything is right in the world. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. Artax didn't die in the swaps of sadness. You know, Bastard mm-hmm. was able to wish it back to, to normal. And, uh, you know, and then you get to the end of Cujo and Cujo's all about like, well, all that fight that desperate, you know, mother did to keep her, her son alive. She mm-hmm. knew she was still a little too late. And, yeah. you know, and now like the whole uh, post log of the uh, of the story, there's it's just really about them grieving and, you know, the the mom and dad grieving and how that kind of in a weird way you know, they, the, their marriage was kind of saved by the shared grief that they have. Right. And mm-hmm. so it, you know, it's, it's a really like, you know, it's, it's really interesting that you bring that up, especially within the context of, of talking about that first book being something like that, because yeah. uh, that did, that hooked me on that stuff. And I don't know if you, did you ever read novelizations of, uh, of movies when you were, when you were younger? You know, um, I would, I would buy them and then just like, look at the pictures <laughs> that is about eighty five percent, but uh, of what I did yeah. do. But I read the novelization yeah. for Terminator Two, um, mm-hmm. because you know it, it, that was another obsession. Like when Terminator Two came out, that was just the coolest thing that anything anybody had ever seen in their life was that movie. Yeah, and, uh, if you're ten years old, and um, and, and I remember reading the novelization, and all the big changes happened right at the beginning because it spends a lot more time in the future world. So you actually see, like, they write about John Connor you know, beating Skynet and then getting in there and then realizing they'd sent a T-1000 back in the time and, and that a T-1000 existed and what it was. And mm-hmm, so it's like mm-hmm. him, like getting Kyle Reese, you know, and, and bringing him over and, you know, sending him back and then realizing that there was something else. And then he has to send, you know, reprogram the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator and, you know, send him back to mm-hmm. like it, all this <laughs> stuff. And I just, my mind was, popping with like all the possibilities like why wasn't this in the movie this is so cool. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so let's talk about the title that you brought us today. oh yes yeah, eventually we were going to get to it huh inevitable said it was yeah eventually we, we would be getting yes to, to the title yeah. Uh, you can't stop it can't stop it's coming yeah we may want to put it off we we may not but, <laughs> but here we are um just to fill you in on our history with this, uh, Eric and I had okay. never seen this uh, until mm-hmm. uh, maybe about six months ago or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a bonus episode on it on the Patreon. You know, we sat down and watched a like a film performance, the only film performance that we could find of it mm-hmm. on YouTube. Um, okay. Was not a big fan. <laughs> uh, Eric, Eric, how? where do you land on it? 
I didn't love it, but I, I will say that I I found it oddly watchable. Is I, I know that that sounds like I'm being condescending, but it was something where because I, I hate that in, in the movie term that would be like the so bad it's good thing, and I really hate right, that, right. that term. Yeah, but there yeah. was there was something about it where I'm like, you know, I think this song is is way too ridiculous. This doesn't really work. It's not really selling this on you know. It's not really selling the the Margaret White stuff on me. It's not mm-hmm. selling this. Mm-hmm. But then like you get to you know Chris's you know you know bitchy number, and I'm just like, mm-hmm. well, I can't deny that I'm you know, very interested in seeing what, what the next part of the song is, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, so mm-hmm, I found mm-hmm. it oddly compelling, even though uh, I could tell I wasn't really having a great time watching it. I think that's sure. a, I think, I think that's a fair uh, read of the situation because yeah. I, I had a similar response where it was like, you, you kind of can't turn your eyes away from it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, right. and, yep. and you are like, there is that anticipation of like, well, how are they going to handle this moment? And how are they going to yep. do this? You yeah. know, and and that's really interesting. Um, I also think we didn't see perhaps the best performance of that musical uh, on mm-hmm. YouTube. Like right. uh, that's the, true. It was just what was available to us, so we could actually have some sort of context. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. And my my guess is that you probably watched new carry the musical because there was i don't know how much you know about the history of it but they they no did that's mass- why you're here i want you to tell them tell yeah. us all about it <laughs> yeah but they did a they did a massive reworking of it in like 2000 and, and like 12 maybe and that's the kind of like that's the that's the licensed version of carry the musical so anytime you see carry the musical being done it's this new version of it but i hmm. very much am a i'm, I'm a, a supporter and a lover of the original which was like just completely batshit crazy Okay, now this is getting yeah. exciting because uh, <laughs> yeah. I was not aware of this. Uh, yeah. Go go on. You know, I'll start by saying I do genuinely love Carrie the Musical, the original Carrie the Musical. <laughs> and, and, uh, but it's, it's, but Carrie should not be a musical. Like it is the ultimate, sure. it's, it just shouldn't be. And I, I love musical theater. You know, I don't know like, like what you guys is, you know, what your relationship is mm. with the art form of musical theater. Are you like, are you into musicals? Or are you not like, what's your deal in general? I am. Um, yeah. I, I, I haven't had the opportunity to see a lot of it like in the theater, you know, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of musical mm-hmm. movies. I, I definitely, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I, I've made the pilgrimage up to New York and gone and seen some shows and sure. You know, sure. I've, uh, you know, I've watched some film performances and I like, you know, and I like musical movies uh, most of the time. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I'm certainly unopposed. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I will say that I, I'm pretty much a basic bitch when it comes to uh, <laughs> musical theater. It's like, you know, Les Mis, I, I can listen to all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, the, what I've seen, I've seen, I saw Spam a lot because Tim Curry was in it. And I wanted yep. to see Tim Curry on stage. Of course. Um, yep. And I love Monty Python, of course. So I, I was kind of mm-hmm. set up for that. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen, I saw Les Mis uh, in yep. London when I was there. I've seen mm-hmm. like a touring Phantom of the Opera. Yep. Um, Culture. Yeah. And like, it, it, so that's kind of the thing where it's like, I, I haven't seen probably the great like off. Right. So I feel like when I say I love musicals and I'm super into musical theater stuff, I'm saying it just like the person who I run into that's like, oh, I love movies. Like I saw the Avengers, you know, it's like, right, right, right. you know, I've, seen, I've <laughs> yeah. seen Avatar, you know, it's like I've just mm-hmm. seen the the biggest ones that everybody's heard of, you know, you know, I've never seen Hamilton, but, you know, I've, I've probably listened to Hamilton and mm-hmm. re- and watched the the taped one that was on Disney Plus a dozen times and listened to to the 
the, the cast album, you know, right. I don't know, right, right. You know, a hundred yeah. times over COVID. So, um, For so, sure. you know, there you go. I just listed off all of the, <laughs> the <laughs> blockbuster top 10 box office versions of right, uh, right, right. Uh, musical theater. So I, yeah, no, 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 I, I, I got you for sure. For sure. So like, I, you know, I am very much like I am a student of musical theater. Like I love, I love, you know, the classics. I, I, I'm, you know, very aware of like, you know, the, the biggies and the, like, you know, the under the radar shows and all this stuff. And so Carrie it's the ultimate, it just should never have been a musical. It's, it's one of those <laughs> things that there are just like, there are some, you know, properties that are there, you know, it's like, there is a reason why Carrie was, was a, <laughs> a book and a movie and was not conceived as a, as a theater piece, mm. much less a musical. And I think that, you know, the thing that musical theater can do is that it, it can it organically give the characters in a story, the opportunity to, uh, to to express what they're thinking, what is happening inside, you know, in a way that like in a movie, you have to, you know, you have to do voiceover or something, or it's, you know, maybe there's like a monologue. Um, but in a, you know, in a musical, like it's so much about people just like sort of flat out saying what they're feeling. Right. And it doesn't, the, it doesn't feel weird. It doesn't feel weird in a musical in the way that it would, you know, in a movie. Right. The I want song is always a part of a, yeah. Yeah. Part of it. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. And so what we, you know, what immediately is so, you know, strange about Carrie is that as soon as you start hearing, you know, what some of the characters are, are feeling, it both makes the whole thing um, too intense because it's like the, the, the story of Carrie, I think is, you know, it's, it's really tragic and it's very heartbreaking and it's just, it's yeah. just fucking awful, you know? And so like, as right. soon as you're getting into the heads of these characters, it, it, it really can take you to an awfully dark place that just makes you want to like shut off. Um, but then, you know, you also have the thing where it's like, how is, you know, hearing what, you know, is Chris, you know, has, has to, you know, feel about any particular moment. How's that like helping this, this larger story? And how is that, you know, moving things along? Um, and not to mention, it's like, as soon as you have people singing, even as a, as a lover of the art form, there's the real potential for things to just be, you know, like fucking ridiculous it's automatically like taking things away from, you know, realism. And it's just, everything is heightened whether you want it to be or not. And sometimes that can, you know, work in magical ways. Um, you know, whether it's like Hamilton or Les Mis or whatever, where it's like people are, you know, singing about things they wouldn't normally sing about, but it just kind of works. But there's just no world where you're ever going to have a musical where people are like singing about, about murdering pigs and collecting <laughs> the blood and have it like not be at, at the very least bizarre, but like probably just hilarious, which is what, you know, the original carried act Two opened with this song that I love so much called out for blood, which was this huge dance number where they were like literally murdering pigs and rapping <laughs> about it. And, yeah. and it wasn't played for laughs. It was played totally straight and which makes it just the most bizarre, like hilarious thing. And so I feel like Carrie is <laughs> filled with moments like that where it's like, they, why would they, why would they be singing? Like, please have to stop singing. It's just something that I, I, I love so much. And what's, and the thing that kind of like defined the initial Carrie production. So like the, so Carrie was written by really great writers, uh, Michael Gore and Dean Pitchford. And their sort of most famous thing up until Carrie uh, was fame. So they wrote right. a lot of the songs for fame, right? And and the script to the musical was written by um, uh, 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 Lawrence uh, D. Cohen. Lawrence Cohen, yeah, yeah, who wrote yeah. the 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 screenplay. 
And yeah, so, for, yeah, for Carrie and uh, and the It yeah. miniseries, by the way. So, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, another, yeah, I mean, another amazing writer who, but you know, who I, I don't think he had ever written a musical before um, when he wrote it. And you know, and it's just musicals are just different. What's so strange is that those, you know, those guys, they're like, you know, they're like all great writers, and but um, I feel like they really had a tough time with the material for like the young people. Hmm. And Carrie, so like it's you know the musical has this weird thing, where in the original at least the the mother daughter stuff, the Carrie and 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 Mrs. White stuff, it feels kind of operatic. It feels kind of like, you know, super serious musical drama. And then the stuff for the kids feels kind of like cutesy, and it's like sort of you know like it's it feels kind of like uh, it's like Bye Bye Birdie or something, and it kind of has that that thing of like, it feels like older men writing what they think teenagers sound like. And so mm-hmm. because it was written, you know, it was written in the early eighties, it has this like, you know, very dated sort of vocabulary. And it's it just, there's, you know, it, it sounds like it was written in the early eighties. And so like they, they wrote this show. So like there was this like, you know, auto, there's automatic issues with the material from the get go. And then the dude who directed it was this guy, Terry Hands, who at the time was the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company in London. And he had never directed a musical, only did like hyper serious, you know, British like theater with a capital T, basically, you know, just did sort of like Shakespearean things. And this is like a super famous Carrie story. Um, that I've heard from very many people involved in the actual thing, there there kept being an issue because the writers kept being like, "Oh, we're you know we're trying to make it like Greece," and and Terry Hands, the director, kept being like, "Yeah, yeah, totally, it, it's like Greece," and he was talking about like Greece as in like ancient Greece, like he because he <laughs> he he saw the story as like as like a you know a Shakespearean tragedy. And he saw it as like, you Holy know, shit. like, like Medea or, you know, or Oedipus or something. And so, you know, literally then what you had in that original production was you had these, you know, these songs that, that did sound like Greece. They sounded like, you know, like Summer Nights or something, but the physical production is like, literally <laughs> they're wearing, they're wearing togas. Like, Holy shit. like if you, yeah, like if you look at the stills from the, from the Terry Hans production of, of Terry, which was in London and then came to Broadway, it's the the girls are literally dressed in togas and the the climax of the the whole show takes place on this this white staircase that kind of looks like a you know like a greek amphitheater like it he very much was going for like for you know greek tragedy and the the writers just were completely not on the same page in the craziest way that's insane yeah <laughs> how did it, it's one thing to have the initial miscommunication. Mm-hmm. It's another to actually follow through with it, you know, on both sides. Like at no point did someone like be like, Hey, what's uh, what's up with the togas? You know, like it, <laughs> it feels like somewhere along the line that should have gotten, should have gotten ironed out. That's, that's nuts. It's one of those things that in, you know, it's like, it almost sounds like how could that possibly happen? Un- it sounds like that until you've actually sort of, been in the world of musical theater and you see how these things are made and you see like the personalities of the people involved. And so it's like, you know, in, in musicals, there are so many different, you know, 
department, so many different things that have to come together. And a lot of the times you're dealing with these different, these different groups of people who are sort of working separately, who, and, 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 you know, in like a very sort of concentrated period of time who then, then come together at the very end. And, you know, you, you hope that there's a director or some sort of leader who's making sure that everyone's on the same page and all doing the same thing. But in, in the case of this, you know, based on what I've, what I've heard and what I've read over the years, being an, an obsessive about this musical, that just never happened. And so you had like, you know, the Shakespearean director who in all the, the scenes he's working on is making it like a Greek tragedy. And then you had the writers of fame and Debbie Allen, who's the choreographer of fame, who choreographed Carrie in a totally, you know, separate place, making these like, you know, dances that are like Greece, but with like, you know, early 80s hip hop dancing. And then it comes time to put it together and you just have this like totally bizarre mishmash of of shit and it's too late to like change anything. <laughs> what so I would not do have it. given to see this. Oh my God. Uh, no, I know. It's, it's, yeah, it's really, it's really wild. It's a very crazy thing. And then, you know, like, and, and, and so Betty Buckley, who is in Carrie the movie, as mm-hmm. the gym teacher, she played Mrs. White on Broadway, and it's like just an absolutely insane performance. Just like one of the great, <laughs> one of the great, like you know, fucking nuts musical theater performances of all time. And she was like, she was really excited to to you know sort of return to the, <laughs> this material as Mrs. White, and she just had this idea of doing, you know, these like mother daughter scenes that were just like, you know, like nothing that had ever been in a musical before, just like acting in this like, you know, ferocious way. And she, you know, pretty much like she worked with Lindsay Haley, who was, who was playing Carrie separately from the rest of you know rehearsals. And they had this like whole insane, like little, you know, kind of like musical that was separate from the larger musical going. And when you see like bootlegs of, of their performances it really is like it's just it's like it's so so stunning it's just like i mean it's like you know hereditary level you know woman losing her fucking mind and the fact that it's like it's oh my god yeah it's just insane i mean and just like you know physical like the two of them are just like going at each other in the craziest craziest ways and it's just like so serious and they're you know screaming and crying and sweating and then it's like that and then the next scene is literally, you know, like kids in togas at like a, what there is, is like a soda shop or something, you know, except it looks like, it looks like a Greek amphitheater as filtered through like a 1980s, you know, like last days of disco, you know, yeah. white enamel design aesthetic. It's just, it's so the, bizarre. The whole thing is the so, peach so pit from bizarre. 90210. Yeah. Yeah. But like, like that. that, the peach pit. Yeah. As filtered through like so many incorrect layers. Fucking Jesus. Thank you, Rob Zombie, for taking us into the mid-roll ad read. That's right, folks. It's time to tell you about the sponsors of this week's show. First up, we've got Watch This Tonight. At the end of your day, when you're burnt out from work, your kids are asleep, and you collapse onto the couch with maybe an hour before you pass out, there's nothing worse than having no idea what to watch. This happens to you, too. Right, Vespi? Oh, yeah. It's fucking awful. Going through 
one uh, streaming service after another, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what to watch. It's it's disgusting. Yeah, you spend more time tired. just looking at at cover art than you do. Mm-hmm. Like you could have watched a whole episode of something by the time right. you you and you usually just end up checking out and going screw it. I'm going to go yeah. mess around on my phone, and that's not good for anybody. You throw on Karate Kid too as background noise. <laughs> right. You end up eating your dinner cold. It is a mess. <laughs> You've got this precious little window of time, and you want to pick something you know is going to be great. That's where watch this tonight comes in twice a week former film development executive and now podcast producer dan benamore will highlight the best of streaming movies tv and documentaries on netflix apple plus hbo paramount plus amazon hulu and anywhere else with bite-sized recommendation episodes new episodes every wednesday and friday if you don't know what to watch find watch this tonight from voyage media on apple podcasts spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Very well done, Scott. Now we should talk a little bit about microdosing. Ooh. Something that I know you have a little bit of experience with. So, yes, uh, Scott, can you tell us a little bit? Like, what is microdosing? Microdosing, and, you know, this applies to THC, D9THC, shrooms, however you want to approach it. But the idea mm-hmm. is that you're not getting overwhelmed by, you know, whatever it is you're taking. You know, it's, it's a little bit to take the edge off. You know, you can do this any time of day. You can do it right before bed. You can do it before. I mean, I guess you could do it before work, depending on what your job is. Not if you're operating. <laughs> you know, if you operate bulldozers, probably should. Yeah. Not, should not yeah. No construction equipment for this. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, well, let's say you're a podcast host, for instance, that might be appropriate. We don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, microdosing is dosing in very, very small amounts. So you're you're getting the effects of whatever it is you're taking, but you're not like, you know, shutting down your system with it. Nice. Yeah. So you're getting that relaxation feeling without tripping balls, essentially. Oh, yes. And you can get some serious relaxation feeling with Lumi Labs. Yeah. yeah this is your ad read. I'll let you take it. Yeah. So Lumi Labs, as you've already hinted at, they've developed a whole line of D9 THC gummies built specifically for microdosing. Now, for me, these Lumi gummies have been a godsend between bouts of insomnia and my body's just natural determination to keep vampire hours. Uh, I have trouble maintaining a regular sleep schedule. And even though I've tried melatonin to mix success, I've tried, you know, I don't know, listening to whale sounds and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, what really does kind of knock me down and relaxes me and, you know, lets me fall into a natural sleep or these loomy gummies. They sent me some samples to try out and uh, I've been, I've been kind of taking them before bed every night and uh, I've been sleeping great. Thank God. Oh um, yeah. Now we, as we mentioned this, you know, when you're microdosing, that doesn't mean you're tripping balls. You're walking around stoned. This product is aimed at helping you relax and it does work. The best part is Lumi's THC gummies are available nationwide and aren't affected by your state's marijuana laws because they use a synthetic THC strain called D9. They can come to you no matter what your state's laws are. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com. And if you like what you see, you can use the code KINGCAST to save 30% off your first order and get free shipping. That's microdose.com, code KINGCAST. Well, with all that said, I suppose we ought to get back to Carry the Musical, yeah? Yeah, I think it's time. Rob. Okay, so th- <laughs> I can tell this, there's a million different things going on in Scott's yeah, mind my, right now. My head is Neurons kind of ex- are firing. Yeah, my brain is not used to doing this much work. Okay, so it's a disaster, right? 
Like, yeah, yeah, total disaster. Total disaster. So someone came along and said, you know what? Let's do it again. Maybe without the togas. Is is that the idea? That's what happened here? I mean, sort of. When it so it opened it opened on Broadway in, in the spring of eighty eight. And it, it only it played for they did I think two weeks of previews and then it had a weekend of performances and it closed. Like it, at the time it was the biggest disaster in the history of, of Broadway. Yeah, so, super expensive, right? I think they they invested yeah, a lot lot into it, yeah. Yeah, I mean I think they lost like, you know, nine or ten million dollars, which uh, was at at the time was like the top, top, top of uh you know of of expense expensive shows and then you know top 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 shows that lost all their money and so it's you know it was it was one of those things because it was so like it was so like you know highbrow lowbrow like there were these moments where it was like genuinely great like the 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 mother-daughter scenes are you know they're like they're they're pretty wonderful it's it's pretty amazing you know mashed up against this other shit that's just so bad like so truly bad but also like you know but fun but really really watchable and really not boring in a way that a lot of musicals are boring like that's the other thing too that and is certainly still the case but at the time in the 80s there just wasn't a lot of 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 great shit happening on Broadway a lot of the big musicals at that time were these british imports like Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis and Cats but there wasn't a lot of like american stuff going on there wasn't a lot of it wasn't it wasn't like the, it was certainly like not the golden age of, of of broadway and a lot of the the stuff that didn't work which was most of the stuff was just kind of boring it was very forgettable so carrie was like nobody had seen anything like this and so it when it closed it there was just like this this constant fascination with it by so many people which is how you know the book that i that I found by Ken Mandelbaum that sort of introduced me to the show and to Stephen King in general. Like that's what, you know, that's why it's like people were writing mm-hmm. about it because it was this legendary, you know, notorious thing for a long, long time. The writers being Pitchford and Michael Gore, they just wanted nothing to do with it. Like they didn't put it in their bios. They pretended as if they had nothing <laughs> to do with Carrie's musical. And I would get like, I would get so pissed off whenever I saw a show that either of them worked on. And I would always, I would, you know, this is me like in high school, I would, you know, quickly like go to like read their bio. And if they didn't put Carrie in it, which they didn't do, I just like these fucking assholes. They don't even, they don't even know what they did. They don't appreciate their own great work. But then like mid 2000s, because so many theater people, you know, loved it and were intrigued by it, there started to be this like resurgence of it. People started doing songs from it at concerts and stuff. And then, uh, this director, uh, Stafford Remo, who's a really great director. It was his idea to revisit the material. And I think enough time had passed that the writers were like, okay, let's do it. And and basically the idea behind New Carrie was like, let's make it a musical about bullying and let's really filter the whole story through this modern lens mm-hmm. of like uh, nothing good comes from bullying, which I, I don't actually think is the message of Carrie. <laughs> you know, it's like I think that's part of it. As an artist, I would I, I don't find it particularly interesting to like try to filter Carrie down to that um, to to a bullying is bad message because I just don't think it totally works. Um, mm. But the the writers returned to the material and uh, and you know made this new version of it, which is which is totally fine. But it really just kind of to me it's just boring. You know, it's just kind of like it 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 gets rid of all of the shit that was so you know so fun and so huge about the original and just kind of like evens it all out and so it feels like a it feels like maybe a little classier of an affair but it's not not as exciting as the Mm. original i think Mm. 
Well, no, because I mean, this one doesn't have tokens. Like that's a that's a step up, like right off the bat. Right. But it, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, you know, and and the, and the sort of like hook of it. So like when it when it premiered because it, it played off Broadway uh, in, in the early two thousand or like two thousand twelve or something. And uh, the hook of it was that there's no blood. It's Carrie without blood. They just uh, sort of uh, did it with like pro- projections, which like at the time was sort of like you know it felt like theater people being like, oh, we're you know we're we're above this material. Like it's theater people being like, it's, it's a, it's a horror story, but it's not really horror. Um, hmm. And I, you know, which was also like quite offensive to me, like Carrie as an idea, as an entity, it's more about blood than bullying. You know, it's like literally about blood. Yeah. And yeah. so yeah. Yeah. It, starts, it starts, it starts with blood and ends with blood. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, to do it without that is, is uh, just, you know, snoozy to me. You mentioned that this thing lost nine, ten million dollars. Mm-hmm. At the mention of Broadway flops that have cost that much, I, I've got to ask and go off on a little tangent here, possibly. Uh, did you see Spider-Man turn off the dark? Oh, yeah, of course. What was that like? I've never I don't think I've ever talked to anyone who's seen it. Oh, yeah. 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 So I, I saw Spider-Man when because, you know, the thing about that show is that they pre they, so they did previews for like, I mean, months and months and months and months and months. Like it just it was it actually it was I think it was over a year they previewed before they ever actually opened. Good and so job. when I saw it, it was when they were, they were having a lot of injuries. So it was like, you know, <laughs> literally it's, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's nuts, but like there, there were so many like crazy injuries on that show. And so you literally had like actors, you know, fall, fall, falling from the sky and, and, and truly, <laughs> truly, you know, in, injuring themselves and create like I, one of the actors broke his neck and I, I think he's fine, but it's like, it, 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 like it was really crazy. And so that seeing that show was like nothing else I've ever seen. As you were sitting in that theater, it wasn't just like, oh, this is this is very bad, which it was. Uh, but it was like I could be killed. I could literally <laughs> be killed by a, by a falling human sitting watching this musical. I kind of hope I never experience that again because it felt really real. But uh, it, there was just nothing like it. But you know that that show was like what was crazy about that. And also what made it interesting and, you know, not dissimilar to Carrie is that it was, you know, it was very silly and it was cheesy. And, and, you know, the score was by U2, which again, it's just like the, the dumbest <laughs> matchup of, of, of artists and material. Like why, why, why? But, um, cause it's U2 and that's why. It's cause U2. That's yeah, it. yeah. 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 Who, yes. Who, who also like clearly did, did not spend all that long on their Spider-Man <laughs> right. songs. Like, it's like, I don't know if you ever heard the score from that show, but it's like, this wasn't, you know, it wasn't, they weren't writing like, you know, um, with or without you for Spider-Man. They were just kind of like pooping out some, <laughs> some vaguely Spider-Man-ish songs. And that was kind of it. But Pull, there pulling were like, B-sides out of the vault and just inserting the word <laughs> Spider-Man into them. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. And then like every, it was also one of those shows where it was like every third song sounded like Vertigo. Like their song Vertigo. You know, just all, they yeah. all just kind of sounded like that. It was, it was very strange. But, um, but there were visually... Because it was directed by Julie Taymor, who's you know yeah. really, I think, a really dope director, and you know she directed Lion King on Broadway and and uh, Titus and you know lots of great movies. Uh, but you know visually, there were moments where it was like so stunning, like really, really amazing stuff, and it felt like oh this you know this is like this, what? this person, like um, there was like uh, the you know so like Spider Man and and uh, Green Goblin would have had these like aerial fights. Which, yeah. which, you know, while being really scary, um, or because 
you know, you felt like, oh, I hope they don't fall on me. It was like, you know, stuff, it, it was, it was sort of happening. Like they would do it sort of like with all of this crazy wire work in the middle of the theater. So they really were sort of like dangling over your, your, your head. And then like, there was all of this stuff with perspectives. So, like the set was kind of constantly changing. So as you watch the stage, it, it really was like, it was cinematic in the best way. It was like, it was cinematic where like they were using the tools of theater to, to, they were using the tools of theater to you know speak with the language of of film whereas like a lot of times in shows when something when people call things cinematic a lot of times it just means that there's like a lot of like screens and projections but this was like using actual um you know actual like real stuff and 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 theater you know like like true you know not to be cheesy but like true theater magic to create something that felt like Mm. like it was um you know it could only could only be done live it wasn't like, oh, why am I watching this? Why, why aren't I just watching this on screen? You know, why is this not just, just you know, Spider-Man as we know it? It felt like a true live, live event. So yeah. why did it, did it fail because it was a bad musical or did it fail because people kept almost getting killed while making it? Um, it was, I think it was a combination of all of the above, uh, yeah. you know, but I mean, for one, I think just the, it was just too expensive for its own good. It was like one of those things where, it's like, you know, it, o- it only would have not failed if it was the most popular musical of all time. You know, like it only would have not right. failed if it was if it, they sold out every single seat, you know, for 20 years. And it right. was the opposite of that. And so it's that. But it's another thing where it's like, I think that at, at its heart, it was like a corporate venture. And it was something that it just shouldn't be a musical. Like, I, I, I do think that you know, the story of Spider-Man, it, it, it could be a musical maybe, but it's just, it just shouldn't be, you know, at a certain point, it's like, it's just, it's just kind of silly. It, it, it's right. taking something that, you know, that people know really well that we've seen before. And it just feels like, what is, what is, what is music really going to add to this story? Especially once you get into like uh, the villains singing and it, it takes any kind of like danger out of the material. And then when you do that, the well you know once the danger goes then it feels like well the stakes aren't really there and so then it's just like a guy in a in a silly costume like dangling over your head right right so on on this topic of of bad musicals you know yeah. <laughs> um when you when you're writing a musical here, here let me come at it from this angle what yeah, you yeah. do what people like you do uh or even just you know basic songwriters is a complete fucking mystery to me. I will never understand <laughs> synthesizing words and music, writing music and performing yeah. it. Like when I was in like, you know, middle school, high school, I, I was in like a Nirvana cover band, you know, we all had guitars and shit. We all mm-hmm. got our parents to buy us, you know, cheap fucking fenders and uh, we're <laughs> utterly terrible, but like, that's the closest I've ever come to doing anything musical. And uh, I find the process fascinating. Um mm-hmm. I know no one ever sets out to write a bad musical, but in your mm-hmm. opinion, like, is there, is it that, is it that some musicals shouldn't exist? Like we're talking about with, with Spider-Man or the original version of Carrie, where yeah. it's, you know, just this does not need to be a musical. And so fundamentally you fucked up or like, do you, do, could you see a way to make those things work as musicals even though you don't believe they should exist yeah yeah you know it's so it's so tricky because i don't i don't think it's as easy as just like a you know 
as a blanket, something simply should not be a musical because that's like, you know, some of the best musicals are, are that like, you know, uh, Sweeney Todd, it's like, that's mm-hmm. the ultimate, like, you know, that, that show it's, you know, it's, it's crazy. And there's, you know, the, the barber and he slits people's throats and uh, his accomplice turns them into meat pies, but it's a musical, yeah. but it's not funny. It's like kind of scary, but it also is a little bit like, that's like, it, that shouldn't be, but because of the alchemy of the artists who made it right. and because that story spoke to them, it, it, it works. It like fucking works like crazy. And so yeah. I and little shop of horror like, shouldn't, shouldn't yeah. work either. Right. It's like 100%. that yeah. a cheesy Roger Corman one off, you know, shot mm-hmm. in two days, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. movie about a, yeah. a man eating plant. And it's yeah. one of the best uh, musicals that's ever, ever been written. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I, you know, I think that the thing, I think the biggest thing, no matter what it is, is like, are the people who are making this, this musical, this piece of art, are they making it for the right reasons? Are they mm-hmm. making it because this material speaks to them and they feel like they can make something great? Or are they making it because, you know, some film company is going to pay them a lot of money to, to make it? Uh, and that that really is like the thing that I think, you know, it, it boils down to the more shows I see. And now, you know, now on Broadway, like at, at the time, at the time of, of, uh, of certainly of Carrie and even a little bit of Spider-Man, there just were not nearly as many movie to musical adaptations, which mm-hmm. now it's like now, you know, in, in theater, now the sort of like the equivalent of like the only, you know, movies that get made and put in theaters are, are, are Marvel movies. The, 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 the Broadway equivalent is like the only shows that end up on Broadway are like, uh, you know, shows that are based on these, on big movies. Uh, and so, and so it's like, even with those, you can just tell when the people who made it actually are connected to this material. And even the ones that don't, don't totally work. It's like, it's just different than the ones that feel like cynical enterprises that the ones that feel like, Oh, this is just, you know, some big company going through their IP and saying what's gonna what's gonna you know bring in the, the cash or something. Um, right on. Having said right that, on. I I do believe that there are some movies and books or whatever that just would that make terrible basis for musicals. You know, it's like I just I do think that like you know a musical is a funny beast and it's and it's if you're gonna turn something into a musical, you should really be confident in what music is going to bring to this this story yeah. to this this property this whatever you know dear zachary the musical jesus right. christ <laughs> <laughs> not a living soul in the house by the end of that one um, i love all the people thinking they're going to see dear evan hansen and that one. jesus yeah. christ Welcome to that one. Um, yeah. so do you what stephen king books do you think could make a successful yes. musical oh yeah i mean this like my my sort of like number one that um, that you know I, I always say whenever I'm asked just is you know whenever I'm asked even like is there any you know big movie or big you know book or something that you want to turn into a musical uh, it's always it I think it would be a fucking killer musical and mm. it's like and that might be that might be preposterous that might be like the dumbest thing I've ever you know I've ever said but for sure. me because I, I love that I love that story. I love those characters and I think I know I would know how to do it in a way that was like aware of the, you know, the kind of lunacy of that story and, 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 um, and, you know, and embraced the, what I, what I think of as the theatricality of that story, but also, you know, had something to say about childhood and, you know, growing Mm. up and all that nonsense. Do you cast Um, it? Do you cast it with like Billy Elliot kind of thing where you actually bring the kids in or do you, 
are you going to be casting it with like adults playing kids? Um, no, I think it's like, I think it's actual kids. I, and I think yeah. it has to be like, it has to be like a six hour musical. Like that's always my, <laughs> that's always right. my pitch. Like it just, it just has to be, it's gotta be yeah. like three acts, you know, th- or, th- like it has to be almost like three separate musicals, you know? And I think uh-huh. one, the first, you know, the first one, it's like you do, you know, you do, I actually think it's start, it's just, just adults and then you do the kids. And then in the, the, the third part, they're all together, but it's just, it has to be at least six hours. That's the only way it works. It's got to be a full day of of theater going. <laughs> I can I can kind of picture that like finale act where you you're getting all the you you bonded with the different two different casts or whatever. And since yeah. the text is all about intertwining memory yeah. with modern time, where you could do some really clever stage trickery to have them interacting on the same sets and and just like yeah. missing each other and stuff. Little. I guess Harry yeah. Potter and the Cursed Child kind of mm-hmm. magic that yeah. they do there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the thing that theater, the thing that theater can do that, you know, film can't quite do is you can have two people, you know, in different locations exist in the same, in the same place, in the same room in a really organic way. And you can sort of, you know, intertwine stories and 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 locations in a way that in you know in film it's just it's you know it becomes like it's split screen or something it's like there's like a you know you it's there's a there's a detachment when you do that in film where whereas like in theater it's just all right there and so that because you know it is so much about like the intertwining of of stories and time periods and all that i think it it kind of you know could lend itself to that the sort of mingling of past and present all in the same the same place yeah, I'm I'm into it. It's the musical. Look out, world. It's the new Spider-Man. How uncommon are six-hour musicals? Um, how uncommon, did you say? Yeah, they've got to be pretty pretty uncommon, yes? Oh, yeah, yeah. This, like, this no one's ever going to... No one's going to fund a six-hour, <laughs> right? Oh, no, like, no. Yeah, no, it would be... Yeah, no, pr- prohibitively expensive. Like, and it's, <laughs> so it's not only... Not only is it six hours, but you got to do it with, like, I'll, I'll say I'll say like fifty people. Like it, it has it would be so impossibly expensive um, <laughs> that only a only a, a true crazy person would fund it. Because even if it was like the most successful musical of all time, you'd lose all your money because it's just too too much. And also, like kids cost extra anyway because they need tutors and all that garbage. And so it would just it would be like an impossible show. But it's uh, it remains my dream. I, I want to get like, um, you know, like Lincoln Center Theater. Like I want some like sort of huge theatrical nonprofit um, theater entity to to produce um, along with like a very wealthy person who just likes right. it a lot. <laughs> That's Maybe the goal. has lost their mind. I, I, if, yeah. if you ever get this project off the ground, um, my one note is that mm-hmm. it shouldn't be called It the Musical. It should be called mm-hmm. It! Exclamation point. <laughs> Um, I will I take see, it. I can see the posters already. Do you have a hundred million dollars to give me uh, to make this musical happen? Because that not on me. Point is right yeah. there. Um, <laughs> it will. Yeah, it will be there in in a, in a split second. Um, yeah, we'll see. But other, you know, get. But if if it doesn't happen, which I I really hope it does. If I if I if I become like Lin Manuel level famous, that's <laughs> that will be my project. That will be my thing, and I think that's what it will take. But I, one one day, uh, once one day. you've collected all the Tonys, you've won them. Mm-hmm. You've won all the Tonys. Yep. Then they have to give you the musical. That's just how that's it works. true. That's true. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm owed 
my it, my six hour fifty person mm-hmm. it musical. Yes. I, I don't know much about Broadway, but I do know that if you collect six Tonys, much like the Infinity Stones, you are automatically granted a hundred hundred million dollar budget to do it for six yes. hours every day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and they're all yeah. wearing togas. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no togas. We would forbid. <laughs> the only other one that I've always thought would make a good musical is Dolores Claiborne. I think it's hmm. a good one. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That'd be a real serious show. That would be like very much like a you know musical somber. drama. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, somber. But it is like there is you know it's it's always I feel like it's fun to see uh, women of a certain age murder people. So <laughs> In Wells, no less. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned earlier that there are bootleg copies of the early carry musical out there how hard are those oh yeah to find you know it used to be it used to be crazy hard now they've sort of like you can if you go on youtube you just have to know what to look for but i mean they're really grainy but you can see the original production if you search for um so it, when it was in when it was in london it was in the royal shakespeare company's uh stratford upon avon uh theater mm-hmm. and so if you search uh like carry uh uh, Carrie Stratford, it'll come up, and then um, there's an Act One bootleg of of Broadway. It's only Act One though, because the one of the cast members, it was the final performance, and he was like, "I'm gonna film this," and so he uh, just had like an old school, like you know, like video recorder, a uh, camera, and he uh, taped it to the mezzanine, and the battery ran out after Act One. <laughs> it's only Act One. But, oh my god. Yeah. Um, But you know, when I was like, when I was, when I first discovered Carrie and I first got into it, it was like, I, you know, the, the internet was like, you know, just, just becoming a thing. Right. And so I sort of stumbled upon this, like, you know, very early, like, you know, like, you know, dark web of like people trading musical theater bootlegs. And I found this person who was, who was, you know, trading the, the Carrie uh, soundboard recording. There's this really famous, you know, recording they did of the last performance that was taken from the soundboard. So the the so just an audio, but the the quality was really good. I got it, and I was, you know, I guess I was like 11 maybe uh, when this happened. And I um I remember, you know, it came in the mail, and I went to my bedroom and I listened to the whole thing, and it was true. Like the excitement that I felt hearing it for the first time after reading about it for so long was like it was like very few things. I have ever experienced in my life. Um, and then I sort of was turned on to this, this whole sort of secret world of people who were obsessed with Carrie and had like little bits of footage and like news, hmm. newsreel footage and everything. And then I, the Holy grail was this act one bootleg um, that is, is now just on YouTube, but I finally tracked it down. And so I got it and then I would, you know, trade it. It was like the ultimate, you know, Mm-hmm. trade and so far as like musical theater bootlegs and so i you know i was trading it for a while and then one day and i was i was probably like 12 um i got an email and the email was from this guy and he said uh, you know hello uh, mr iconis it's come to my attention that you are in possession of a uh, an illegal recording of of carrie <laughs> i am betty buck i'm i'm betty buckley's attorney and if you don't oh my God. send me the the video cassette we will be pressing charges and so I got the email and I was just like, oh my God, like 12 years old, like my mother, you know, I was like, no idea that I'm like this, you know, this like kingpin of, of Carrie. Holy you know, shit. 
online. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, made a copy of the tape and I sent it to Betty Buckley's attorney. <laughs> <laughs> smart man. Yeah. As a smart yeah. 12-year-old. Yeah, well done. Yeah, yeah. Well played. <laughs> I was no fool. Yo, thanks. <laughs> and I, you know, and it's crazy because I, like, I've actually, like, I've, I've worked with Betty quite a few times and I... Um, and I, you know, I, I know her and I wrote a song for her and, and, uh, and she's, she's really cool. Like a, you know, a really awesome person. And she's like been to my apartment where I have a framed carry poster and everything. And she's, you know, always like very kind when I ask her, you know, questions about the whole thing, but I've, I've never actually told her, uh, that she, oh, you got it when I was told, you gotta tell her, you gotta <laughs> tell like, her. That'd I, be so funny. I know. I just, it's like one of those things where I, I like, you know, when I first met her, I've only known her like five years now. I thought, you know, there will be the perfect time for me to be like, Betty, funniest thing. When I was 12, I, you know, I was illegally trading and recording with you. But I, there's just something in me that prevents me from doing it. And I think it's because I just, I'm worried that she's going to, you know, like stab me or something. I, I'm worried that she's going to go like Margaret White on me. Yeah. It's just, you know, no matter how much I know her, it's just, she is, she's just, you know, she's just Margaret. How about this? We'll get Betty Buckley on the show and we'll tell her. Yes, yes, please, yeah, do, do, it, do yeah. it for me. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. Very helpful. <laughs> well, well it, 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 at least then cast. you can barricade yourself somewhere if, in in case you're worried against her about her, <laughs> you know, coming after you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good plan. Well, this is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to tease whatever they're working on next, tell us where we can find you, all that cool stuff. Um, the floor is yours, Joe. Uh, yeah, so I'm, um, I am, uh, I've just released this very big album, uh, which is called Album, and it's 44 <laughs> of my songs. Uh, there's a bunch of, uh, you know, horror adjacent tunes on the album. Uh, the aforementioned, uh, you know, Misery song, and there's one, uh, as I said, about Death Becomes Her, and, and, uh, there's songs about werewolves and velociraptors and, I have a Michael Myers song. And uh, so, you know, ch- check it out. Uh, album by Joy Constant Family. And uh, I'm working on a new musical about Hunter S. Thompson. That's oh, like my next, yeah. my next musical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Hunter S. Thompson bio musical that nobody asked for. And I'm giving Holy this. Lord. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. that I might need to make the pilgrimage out there to see because that sounds amazing just, in, you know, just conceptually. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it, it's going to be cool. It's like, I, um, I, I, I like Hunter S. Thompson a lot. And I, when I first, you know, this sort of goes back to what we were talking about. I was like, you know, when I first was thinking about it, I was like, Oh man, this, you know, to make a musical out of the, the life of Hunter S. Thompson is a, is a really, really bad idea because he, you know, as a, just as a, as a person, you know, just literally the way he spoke was just so, you know, <laughs> challenging and the idea of like mm-hmm. having him having him sing it just feels like there's such a massive you know potential for it to be just the most like you know embarrassing the most like, <laughs> ridiculous. The cheesiest most awful ridiculous thing and i kind of went through all of these reasons for why it was the world's worst idea and then i was like this means i have to do it you know because <laughs> like, this is like these are all like the, this is exactly why i am the person who must write the hunter s thompson musical um so yeah, it's kind of like um, I, you know, I have to like always sort of talk about it and describe it before it's out. And I always, I always kind of talk about it as like it's like um, if Hamilton, if Hamilton the musical is like the you know the valedictorian, the mm. the, the hunter in like the, the in the in the you know the high school of 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 theater or something. 
right. the the Hunter S. Thompson musical is like the you know the the kid who's like throwing stink bombs in the back of class and he gets thrown out. <laughs> 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 it's setting, the wobbler you know, of, of, of musicals. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I, yeah I'm musical. Yeah. Definitely into that. Yeah, all in. I, I I get weird flashes of like Hedwig or something when when I try to think of like the tone of what that could be. I know yeah, Hedwig's yeah. a little bit more. They share a similar counterculture relevance, I guess. But there's a, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know why it is that, that I initially flashed on that, but that that's kind of what I feel like a Hunter Thompson musical yeah. has to occupy a little bit of that same tonal space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not not no, for sure. I think it's okay, definitely. Good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. More <laughs> You'd be the... like, no, not really. Good try, though. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. think I think it needs to have a villain named Swiss Miss. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna need to have people on wires, and you're also gonna need togas for this thing. You know, mm-hmm. we can yeah. get you two in there. Yeah, have we learned? Have we learned nothing? Yeah, <laughs> maybe I'll. I'll ask yeah I'll I'll ask you two to ghostwrite and Pennywise just just to start planning the <laughs> yeah. scene. Yeah, a little Pennywise cameo. Yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> you can yeah La- laugh all you want about it the musical man. I'm telling you, it could be beautiful. <laughs> if you it ever make it, if you ever make it, uh, we have to have uh, box seats opening night. That's, that's yes, I, that's you all, yes, you are you are one and two on the opening <laughs> night guest list for sure. Yep, um, it's yeah. uh, but, oh, you know, not it's, that, you know not like, Stephen King. No. Uh, no, 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 no. He's yeah, yeah. He's yeah. It depends. Depends how much he's he's behind it or not. Um, but I, I was going <laughs> to say with the, the Hunter S. Thompson show. So we've been developing it for years and years. And um, the the woman who is the the sort of female lead of the of the show is Mar- is actress Marcy Harriel, uh, who's a really awesome actress. Um, but she's in Death Proof. She plays herself in Death Proof. Oh, yeah, it all comes know. back. It yeah. all circles it all back to back. the beginning. Yeah. Oh, actually, I do have one final question unrelated to Carrie, because, you you know, Little Shop uh, of Horrors came up a couple of times on this recording. And uh, it just so happens, like two nights ago, I watched that with uh, some friends, like remotely. We all watched it at the same time and we're messaging Uh each other. Anyway, uh, uh, a a light debate ensued about what is the best (laughs) song in Little Shop of Horrors. And I'm wondering if you uh a person who certainly knows their shit could weigh mm-hmm. in on that. yeah it's it's really tough i i love that score very much there's two that immediately pop to mind i you know i think is it somewhere that's green and suddenly seymour listen i the two the best song is is from a from a writing standpoint is somewhere that's green that's an yeah. amazing song it accomplishes so much in such a short amount of time. And it does the thing that I love in, in all good writing, not just musical theater, but it's, it is both, it is both really, really, really funny and really, really, really heartbreaking. Yes. And, and, you know, in the show itself, there's a reprise of that song when Audrey dies because Audrey dies mm-hmm. in the, in the musical version. Yeah. And when she dies, she says, uh, as he's, he's, cause, and so she, she dies and then she's like, feed me to the plant Seymour and it'll, you know, it'll grow and you'll know that I'm, I'm helping you on whatever you want to do. And so she, right before she dies, she says, um, uh, 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 watch and you'll see, finally I'll be somewhere that's green, like referring oh, to shit. the literal plant. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's, and again, and it's like, it's, it's so, it's so heartbreaking and also kind of funny. Oh, so yeah. good. Yeah, Damn. someone's green. 
Yeah, but suddenly Seymour killer song, and I also think uh, Downtown is a really, oh, really, Downtown's really good. Oh, good. Killer Meet number. Green Mother from Outer Space is, is it's oh that's up there for me. Like that's but personally, I mean, I, I can't argue against Suddenly Seymour or or somewhere that's green. But uh, Mean Green Mother from Outer Space just when he's like just <laughs> when the plant is just <laughs> knocking down all the fucking fifties movie monsters. <laughs> I don't oh, know. I just so, I just find that so clever and so fun. It's and, so, and, it's so good. Oh. Unless we forget, you'll be a dentist. Dentist, the, right. the yeah, the the one Steve Martin does in the movie is man. I could just—they're all fucking great, and there's they're, not a clunker in the bunch. No, no, no. It's just like a just a crazy ass score, and you know. And so uh, Howard Ashman, who wrote those lyrics, and he, you know, he wrote the the original show. Like he wrote the the lyrics, and he wrote the the script, and he directed it. Like he is that that man was such a such a crazy crazy genius. That guy. Um, yeah but yeah it's an, an amazing score the um my, my musical uh, be more chill which has there's, there's a lot in it, its dna that is, is very similar to uh, to little shop and then we you know we closed on uh we closed on broadway in uh, summer you know 2019 and it was um it, it, it was hard because you know it's I've, I've been in the business for a while and i'm, I'm pretty scrappy and I, I i do shows with like you know a lot of like the same people i have this sort of family of, of artists who i do stuff with and um, and so you know, Be More Chill was our first our first really big thing, and and so it, you know it was the the closing was hard, and um, the the show ended, and I, I did this sort of song on the stage of the theater, and everyone's crying and everything, and someone someone came up to me and they were like, um, Rick Moranis is here. I was like, what? oh my god, like, yeah, Rick, Rick Moranis like randomly came to see the show today. Do you want to meet him? And I was like, yeah. And so it was this bizarre thing where Rick Moranis just popped up. The, oh the my final lord! And some Broadway, as if like yeah, some some you know. Some amazing angel of nerdy sci-fi hard. I'm appeared. so jealous. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, Joe, thank you so much for being here today and enlightening us about uh, the history of Carrie the Musical. This was great, and we wish you uh, much luck in all your your future endeavors, up to and including the six-hour musical version of it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'll see you at opening. Many thanks to Joe Iconis for joining us and uh, finally bringing Carrie the Musical to the main feed. It, Absolutely. Uh, uh, it, it, I've I've uh, heard through the grapevine afterwards that he was nervous that he was like rambling too much or something after that that appearance. But like, I don't know, like that to me is exactly what I'd want. You know, you invite somebody onto the show who knows their shit. I want to hear them go in depth on this stuff. So yeah, to, totally. uh, so Joe, if you're listening to this, you did a great job. Yeah, well done, Joe. Thanks for all the all the information on this. Uh, I learned more about Carrie the Musical than I ever thought possible. We got a little, we got uh, some Spider Man turn off the dark chatter in there as well, which I was very we curious did. about. Some we love thrown at Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It was um, uh, a great conversation. I'm glad we've got all this out on the table now about uh, Carrie the Musical. Yeah, no, he was he was a great guest and. Um, yeah, and I'm glad we finally tackled this, this topic. Now let's talk about what's coming next week on the main feed. Would, do you want to do this one or do you want to take the bonus up? Like, how are you feeling this? Are you feeling saucy? I think, you know, the guest better on the main feed app than Mm -hmm. I do. So I'm going to let you take that one and I'll take the bonus up. Sweet. All right. Yeah. So let's hit the main feed first. So next Wednesday we are going into the jaunt once again we have a guest who is a very well-known screenwriter 
big internet personality as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, judging by our feed, there's already people who have guessed this without us hinting because he's been tweeting about uh, reading this particular short story. So, oh, uh, really? I hadn't seen that. Yet. Yeah, there's already been. Yeah, we have like three replies in their thing, like tweeting, tweeting at us about it. So if you're one of those three people and are listening to this, uh, well done. You figured it out even before uh, we recorded the episode. <laughs> That's impressive. But yeah, this is uh, it's going to be a really fun chat. Uh, I can't wait to do it. Any excuse to talk about the jaunt is, you know, an excuse I will take because I love that story so much. And this uh, person is a very smart writer, and I can't wait to hear what he does to kind of break down the story from his perspective. Yes, I am. uh, I'm very excited for this one, just as I am always excited to talk about the jaunt. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. we've only had the chance to do it once before I need at least eight more jaunt episodes before we wrap this bitch up. Um, for sure. I, th- I think it's very fertile ground. I, I, I'm very excited to record this one. So what's going and on on our Patreon on Friday on the Patreon on Friday? Um, well, let's start here a few, a few weeks back, maybe a month ago now. Um, time means nothing to me. <laughs> uh, we, we had an episode with, uh, three of, the child stars from from it who are promoting uh, a new documentary um, because called Pennywise, the story of it mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that is on Screenbox. That was a great conversation. And there was one person in particular during that conversation that we really hit it off with. And that's the gentleman who played young Ben Hanscom in uh, it. The miniseries. What's his real name, Eric? Brandon Crane. Brandon Crane, not Ben. The other no. guy was Ben. It was yeah, fucking the me up the entire Stan time. Was Ben? Yeah, we need to get. We're gonna get a time machine and go back and change that. It's all, <laughs> it's all fucked up. It completely <laughs> threw me off while we were <laughs> talking to them because yeah. I kept thinking of the wrong person. But anyway, <laughs> um, Brandon Crane is coming on to do a commentary with us for the first half of the It miniseries. That is the, uh, let's say, the first ninety minutes or so, the kids section. The, the night film. one, uh, as they yes. would have been broken down. If you're yeah. old enough like me to have uh, had the VHS version, they they broke it down just like they did when they aired it, where they showed night one, one night, obviously, and then the night two, the next night. The VHSs were broken similarly, too. So they, they were split. They were, it was a two VHS thing. So we're taking that uh, format, and it, this is our way of not making Brandon sit through... Uh, all three plus hours of the miniseries yes. um, or for, ourselves. You know, half of it, which he is not in. So, yeah. And we don't want to do another three hour commentary. Those things are a beating, but <laughs> not, you can not get that unless on Mike the... Flanagan's back for it. So, yeah, that one was, but still like, I got to fucking pee at some point, man. I got a bladder like an infant, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's terrible. Anyway, um, we're really excited about this. We cannot wait to, I think we're recording with him tonight, actually. Yep, at, within a few hours of, uh, of us recording this. Yeah. Yeah. Not tonight when you're hearing this tonight, like, you know, days ago when we recorded this, yes. everyone keep up everyone. Jesus. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Come on. Any, anyway, it's going to be, it's going to be a blast. Um, if you are not already signed up to the Patreon, you should come over there and I'll tell you why. Uh, not only can you get Brandon Crane's commentary for the first half or night one of it, the miniseries, but we are uh, we're going to be announcing something on Friday. Very big news. And mm. it's very likely that people in the uh, the gunslinger tier, which you'll need to sign up for in order to get that commentary, uh, are going to get some early access to. 
I guess I can say tickets, right? Something. Yeah. Something. Um, something. Let's They'll not get say first tickets. Dibs Let's say something. something. Yeah, something. Uh, when that something becomes available to everyone. Uh, so, um, so first of all, stay tuned for a big announcement on Friday. You're going to be very excited about this. And then also, you know, if you want to hear that commentary and you want an early leap on getting involved with this insane thing that we have put together, well, that's another good reason to sign up. Plus <laughs> you get fucking dozens upon dozens upon dozens of old backlogged, uh, King cast bonus episodes, which are, Commentaries, interviews, uh, investigations, and some of the, some of the most niche aspects of of King's body of work. Uh, personally, I can't recommend it enough. I myself am a patron of the Kingcast podcast. Ooh, yeah, and you live it. That's crazy. That's saying something. Yeah, yeah. Head on over to patreon.com slash the Kingcast and sign up. The people in the Gunslinger tier. They get the commentaries. That's the ten dollar a month tier. There's a six dollar tier where you get most everything else, but you don't get the commentaries. Um, and uh, like Scott said, the Gunslinger tier is going to particularly have early access to something interesting in the very near future. So if Just you're go sign up, you're going to want it probably. Yeah, and it's worth it. We make it worth your ten bucks a a month. Like you know, you get all these great like full length episodes that never appear on the main feed. You got so much backlog. Now, if you're a new member signing up, mm-hmm. you know, you got weeks of stuff to listen to. If you and we got this way. goal set a thousand by the end of the year, baby, we got to hit. Yeah. That so talk your friends stuff. into it as well. Yes. Get your parents involved. Yeah. It's strangers involved and their yeah, children. Get, get your pastor. Even. Yeah. You know, there's lots of revival talk. I'm sure that'll be interesting to them. So go down, down to the local fire station. Tell them about the King cast Patreon. They'll love that. <laughs> Yes, evangelize for us. Go door Call to door. One one and tell them you need everyone to sign up <laughs> for the Kingcast Patreon. That's what we're saying, right? Now. Yep. So definitely go sign up for that. You'll definitely want to hear that commentary with Brandon, which will be live this Friday and then next Wednesday on the Kingcast main feed. We will be once again going to the jaunt. Two very exciting episodes on the horizon. Bangers, folks. Nothing but bangers over here. All right. Well, we'll see y'all then. Adios. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>